Country Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. This week, I'm excited to welcome Will Thompson of Massive Capital back to the podcast. Last time, we took a look at the coming global energy transition and where potential may lie within that. This time around, we'll be discussing how ESG strategies may be starving capital from the industries that are most critical to leading that transition. Will, thanks again for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, great to have you back on. As I said in the intro, we're going to be talking about ESG investing today. I pulled a couple of numbers just to frame the conversation off the bat. As of the end of second quarter 2020, according to Morningstar, 534 index funds are focused on sustainability, overseeing a combined $250 billion in the U.S. That's quadrupled in the past three years, the investment in these types of funds. Morgan Stanley said earlier this year that ESG will, quote, define the next decade of investing. Will, you just wrote a paper entitled Failure to Impact Are ESG Funds Delivering on Investors' Ambitions? Where do you think ESG funds are coming up short today? Uh, well, Nick, there, there are quite a few places, in our opinion, at least. So um, the paper, which you know we'll make available to your listeners, specifically focuses on sort of what ESG ETFs are doing in regards to accomplishing investors' goals uh, as they relate to climate change and the environment. So um, one of the things our research has found uh, and sort of the research of some third parties like the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investors uh, and Morgan Stanley is that sort of climate change is one of the primary issues for investors that are focused on ESG. And that perhaps even more importantly, uh, those investors, the vast majority of them, uh, believe that their investments can influence climate change. We as investors in sort of difficult to decarbonize industries that think uh, they have a role in this transition, we're quite interested by that. And so when we dug into it, what we found is that if you buy an ESG ETF, uh, you're really not making much of a difference, basically is what it comes down to. Um, the ETF and the way it is structured, the vast majority of the time, you're simply getting an index that is ranked and weighted according to these sort of very odd ESG ranking scores. Um, and that really you end up being heavily allocated to companies that are certainly not, you know, sort of negatively impacting the environment in a, in a significant way, but also they aren't really making much of a difference. Uh, and so ESG ETFs and a lot of ESG mutual funds that take a similar approach to integrating ESG into their investment process, which is sort of this scoring that occurs after evaluation is taking place. They really, they're mostly allocating to companies like Microsoft, Alphabet, uh, Apple, uh, Walt Disney. You know, these are great businesses by you know, no question about it, but whether they're really promoting uh, sort of change uh, in, in regards to the climate, uh, and creating impact uh, is, you know, another story altogether. Right. So it's this idea of avoiding maybe companies that emit into the world, but those dollars aren't necessarily directly reducing the amount of emissions being produced. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I think the, uh, 
as we sort of look out at all the businesses that, that one can invest in, what one finds is that a lot of emissions come from sort of these economically critical industries uh, that need to continue to exist in a decarbonized world, whether that be cement uh, or steel manufacturers, whether that is mining companies. Um, and those companies attract no capital uh, in an ESG investment product. Um, and in fact, are you know sort of increasingly potentially becoming starved for capital. And those are the businesses, though, that require investment in order to enable a transition to a low carbon economy. Right. So you talk about in the paper this idea of two types of firms that that fit into that category of companies that you know aren't getting the, the capital they need, but if they're able to to play the they're going to play a role in, in this transition of the economy, assuming that they're able to, you know, get the investment uh, necessary. You break those up into transistors and enablers. What do you mean by those two terms? Right. So um, you look at something like a steel company, right? And uh, whether we are a low carbon economy or not, we need infrastructure, we need buildings, um, all of these, you know, both of those things require steel inputs. You know, manufacturing of all car kinds requires steel inputs. So steel companies need to continue to exist, right? And they need to transition from their current processes, which are often very carbon intensive, to a low carbon footprint. And that low carbon footprint may mean that they are uh, powering glass furnaces with hydrogen. Uh, there are also other methodologies that people are coming up with. Maybe it means more investment in electric arc furnaces powered by hydrogen, uh, hydropower electricity. Uh, either way, we need steel, but the business needs to transition to a low carbon footprint. It's not that we can just avoid decarbonizing steel. It's that we need to invest in steel in order to decarbonize it. And investing more in Microsoft or Apple simply isn't going to accomplish that goal. Right. And so you look at the example maybe of, of electric vehicles, right? Massive amounts of capital ha has flown to that industry, to Tesla and other companies. And you've seen uh, this industry develop in a way that, that it can really make an impact over this, this next decade, whereas you don't see that in some of these other industries. Absolutely. So, I mean, as you said, Tesla is sort of one of the great examples. All that capital flowing into Tesla uh, and Tesla only, basically, um, you know, has changed the direction of the entire industry. You now see every car company. And just last week, uh, what GM came out with their electric Hummer. I mean, everyone is turning to electric and a lot of it was driven by the capital flows that went into Tesla and the fear from everyone else that Tesla was going to eat their lunch. So uh, a lot of people want, you know, divestment strategies. They want to not be invested in oil and natural gas, not be invested in steel, not be invested in polluting companies. But the fact of the matter is that smart cal capital allocation to managers who are thinking about these problems in the long term is going to make a much greater sort of impact on solving the problem than just pulling capital from these businesses and allocating it to, again, businesses that sort of neither do harm nor good. And Tesla is a prime example of that. Yeah. So you talk about, you know, the auto industry, Elon Musk comes in and has turned this into something that, that people get very excited about. Do, do we need someone like that in, in the steel industry and the cement industry that, that makes this a, a sexy industry to invest in? How much of that is is the marketing of some of these industries? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm not sure how sexy cement can get. <laughs> um, but uh, it certainly wouldn't it certainly wouldn't hurt. 
um, a, a little marketing acumen on the part of the steel producers, the, the glass manufacturers uh, would certainly be helpful. Um, you know, chemical industries, the, the list of industries uh, that are significant emitters just goes on and on. Um, electricity and uh, the transportation industry, the vast majority of the carbon emissions coming from autos, they make up a lot of the emissions, um, but only about 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And the rest of it comes from other industries. All those other industries have a Tesla in them somewhere. They have an Elon Musk in them somewhere. Is that person going to be quite as uh, bombastic as, as Elon Musk? Pr probably not. But uh, uh, will there be significant returns? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so where do you go about identifying th these opportunities, these companies that, that, are, that are on the cutting edge of developing these new processes to make whether cement uh, production or, or steel production cleaner? How do you go find these businesses that are doing that? Yeah, so we, uh, we tend to take a bit of sort of uh, what we think of as a constraints-based approach. So we've looked at uh, the IPC, IPCC and, and various different uh, trans, transition pathways. So, so the paths that think tanks and whatnot believe we need to go on to transition to a low carbon economy. And in those pathways, they often basically identify sort of like a carbon budget, right? So we can emit X amount of carbon between now and 2050 to achieve the goal of no more than 1.5 degrees or no more than two degrees. And you look at that carbon budget and you can say, okay, X amount can come from this industry, Y amount can come from this industry. You can sort of divvy it up and say within this budget, these are the uh, constrained sort of points. There's, there's no capital flowing to steel. There's no capital flowing to glass. There's no capital flowing to know, ammonia production methodologies that are low carbon. So within that carbon budget, we can then identify uh, places where there is an opportunity for someone to either develop a new technology or an opportunity for instituting a new process or an opportunity for something sort of out of right field like carbon capture to make a significant impact. And within that, then you, you look for businesses and you look for management teams that are cognizant of those constraints and are looking for ways to make money by sort of breaking through. Um, yeah. And in regards to the transitioners, sort of that is, at least in our mind, one of the better approaches. Oh, yeah. So, so when it comes to these transitioners, tell me about a company that, that's in that subsector uh, that you think is interesting right now and why. Yeah, so... I think transitioners are, are it's interesting when, when we look at the landscape and we'll talk about the enablers in a moment, but, you know, the transitioners and enablers, there's going to be over the next 30 years, this sort of give and take between the two. And at any given time, uh, the path forward, if you will, the path of least resistance uh, for transitioning firms of one kind or another is going to be easier or harder. Right now, transitioning firms is a difficult place to look. Uh, and the reason for that is because a lot of the technologies, a lot of the business strategies, a lot of the capital allocation that needs to occur is in very early stages. Okay? But one of the places where we think it's uh, particularly interesting right now is a lot of sort of old school classic utilities. Uh, and specifically at the moment, at least, uh, the European utilities are ahead of the U.S. utilities. And so I think for your listeners who are mostly in the United States, 
one company that would be interesting to look at, which trades on an ADR with sufficient volume for sort of individual investors would be something like RWE, which is a European utility. The ticker symbol in the US would be RWEOY. Okay, now what's interesting about RWE? So uh, RWE is pivoting from being one of Europe's most polluting coal-based electric utilities into the third largest renewable, power, renewable energy producer uh, in Europe, and thus one of the largest in the world, um, all as a result of this interesting asset swap that they did with Eon, where they traded assets. Okay? And so what's happening is RWE has this huge pipeline now. Uh, they took all of Eon's renewable assets and gave them a bunch of their transmission assets uh, and a couple of other sort of bits and pieces here and there. And so now RWE uh, has a giant pipeline of wind and solar, and that is going to result in sort of uh, significant uh, project pipeline growth um, going forward. There's going to be a premium in the market uh, on what it is they're doing. There's going to be multiples expansion because the earnings quality versus say running a coal utility uh, is going to increase. So there's going to be fundamental based catalysts that drive uh, uh, EPS growth and drive free cash flow growth. Uh, and then there's going to be a resulting sort of market premium uh, based on multiple expansions. So you look at who their competitors are going to be once they finish this transition, which is going to take a couple of years. And it's going to be companies like uh, Orsted uh, or EPD, both of whom trade at significantly higher multiples um, than uh, RWE. So I, I think RWE and other European utilities uh, that are clear on the fact that they are transitioning to renewable power producers as opposed to more traditional utilities uh, that trade as an ADR in the United States are a great opportunity. So why is the European opportunity, why is that a more attractive market relative to the US right now? Right, so, and we kind of see this these days all over the place, but politics is playing an increasingly sort of important role in everybody's life, sort of in everything. Um, and Tackling climate change is one of these issues that every time we address a problem, it touches people, it touches businesses, it touches policy and politics. Uh, and so the regulatory role that governments play in the transition and in the industries that are sort of the highest polluters is quite high. Um, and, and government plays an important role in those industries because they have historically been polluters. And from a regulatory perspective, um, the path forward for capital allocation uh, for management teams is much clearer in Europe. Um, when you, know, you go to invest uh, a couple hundred million to a billion dollars in various different projects, you sort of want, you want clarity about what the regulatory regime going forward is going to be. And because there is sort of a consistent thought process or at least a relatively consistent thought process uh, in regards to climate change in Europe, uh, the regulatory environment is just much more settled over there for the utilities. And it is becoming more settled for some of these other industries and the path forward for some of them um, is becoming a little clearer also, especially with some of the new regulations and new programs arising out of uh, COVID related stimulus earlier this year. So it's much easier to forecast the pathway because those that regulatory environment is much clearer. Whether it's easier to forecast or whether it's easier to see sort of multiple possible scenarios, you know, I'll leave that up to individuals. 
we believe it's easier to see some multiple possible uh, positive scenarios in Europe than is in the United States. While we're talking about utilities, you wrote recently in your most recent investor letter about this conundrum that utilities in the U.S. and, and other places are facing. Uh, utilities are, are regulated businesses and often are on a cost plus model. What, what challenges does that does that present for a company as it transitions more towards renewables? Um, well, so it's it's kind of interesting, you know, when you run one of these cost plus models or uh, you're in the sort of very contentious uh, deregulated utility markets in the United States where margins are razor thin. Um, the marginal cost of production plays an important role in setting you know, the electricity rates. Now, that, that's, that's the case in any market, of course, but it's, it's particularly vicious in the utility market, if you will. And because uh, renewable power has almost a, a zero marginal cost, right? You set up a solar panel and once the solar panel is set up and everything's installed, all you need to do really is sort of keep it clean. Um, there's no additional, you know, you don't need to buy coal, you don't need to buy natural gas. So what ends up happening um, is the, you know, the, the margins just sort of dive. There, there ends up being significant uh, depreciate or well, not depreciate, significant decline, if you will, uh, in the earnings power. Um, of the assets unless you continue to grow your, your base. And so one of the challenges that utilities in the United States are confronted with is investing in these assets with zero marginal cost and having this cost plus model while having a fixed in uh, sort of customer base. And so one thing we expect is gonna happen in the United States is continue, continued consolidation of the utility industry as they try to properly sequence build out of new assets with growth uh, of their uh, sort of customer base so that they can build out more assets and sort of continue to transition to uh, renewable power. Yes. So, so are, are these businesses going to have to look for, for new revenue streams, change the nature of, of the way they earn, earn their dollars? How should we expect these businesses to change? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely, um, absolutely expect that they're going to need to change some of their business models for sure. And we're starting to see some of that in different places already uh, in Europe, uh, less so in the United States, but, but some of what might be coming is, is being seen in Europe already, uh, which is more of a back and forth flow of, uh, of payments between companies uh, and the utilities, whether the companies are producing electricity or whether they are acting as a, a uh, you know, they, they, Companies can turn off or run at certain different times a day and be paid for that. Um, and that has value to the utility and there's sort of more of a back and forth flow. Um, they're also monetizing, you know, various different uh, real estate that they have, um, advertising, things of that nature. So, so they're coming up with new ways of making money, electric uh, vehicle chargers. There's all sorts of, of new things. No one's quite figured it out yet. Um, but there are a lot of companies trying lots of little sort of pilot projects all over the place. And so that's still quite unsettled, but that they will need to do something else and do something different uh, is almost certain. Yeah, if you had to, if, as you look across the U.S., you know, utility landscape, is there anybody who pops out to you as this is a company who seems to be on the right track or making the right moves? Um. I think AES is particularly interesting. AES is not solely based in the United States, but they are um, sort of a particularly interesting utility. 
um, I think they they would be one of the one of the the opportunities I think that still exists. A couple of the guys like Next Era, um, they've already run quite a bit, and AES itself has doubled over the last couple of years. Um, so there are a couple that have gotten a bit expensive, uh, in our opinion. Um, but uh, AES would be one. Next Era would be another. So. Right, and, and certainly those, if, if we're looking at consolidation, they can maybe use that stock price uh, to, to help uh, carry out some of that. Well, it's certainly a possibility, yeah. yeah. So, so, that, so that's those, those transitioners, these businesses like utilities, steel, cement, businesses that are already in existence that need to make some change to their process or to their business model in order to, uh, to grow and participate in this, this energy transition that, that really needs to happen over these coming decades. When we look at enabler companies, how, how are those distinguishable from the transitioners? Right. So, I mean, obviously, there's a, this is a framework we use to think. And so there's a little give and take here. And sure. Some of the enablers are transitioners themselves and vice versa. Um, but we look at the enablers as sort of the businesses that produce some product that quite literally enables all these other guys to transition. Right. So uh, that's just wind power. You know, they build wind turbines. Um, a lot of enablers in our mind are metals. Okay? The transition to a low carbon economy is incredibly metals intensive, just in every way, shape and form. Um, so there are a lot of businesses that produce goods that enable others to, to decarbonize. Uh, at the moment, um, we actually see enablers as one of the sort of largest opportunities uh, in the market for whatever reason. They're just sort of running ahead of the transitioning firms uh, and the constraints in the system that might result in significant moves upwards in those companies are often based on supply and demand dynamics that are a little easier to see at the moment than for the transitioning firms. Right. You've got this massive amount of capital flowing into, for example, electric vehicle companies that requires a, a significant increase in production of batteries, which requires things like nickel, lithium, et cetera. <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, I think the numbers for, say, Tesla, Tesla car, a thousand pound lithium ion battery, you're looking at, I think it's 25 pounds of lithium, 30 pounds of cobalt, 60 pounds of nickel, 90 pounds of copper, uh, 400 pounds of steel and aluminum. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of metal that goes into these things. Um, so, and, and the same can be said of wind turbines and the same can be said of solar panels. And, what is the level of investment in, in these industries today relative to, to the needs in the market? Well, it's, it's, it's not enough. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you look at the mining industry and I think our, our most recent statistics for where sort of uh, exploration dollars go, I think comes from 2018. And it's something along the lines of 40% of exploration dollars still go to looking for gold mines. I've made plenty of money in gold mines. I like gold mines as much as the next guy. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that gold doesn't make one different, you know, doesn't make a difference one way or the other uh, to the transition. Uh, whereas finding uh, the next great copper deposit, um, you know, we, we've gotten lucky in the last couple of years and, and companies like Ivanhoe uh, and Turquoise Hill have found, you know, some big deposits in Mongolia and the Democratic Republic. Congo, um, but finding a copper deposit and bringing it to production is very difficult. Nickel, even harder. Um, lithium, we've seen, we, we've got plenty of lithium. Lithium's less challenging. It's more about picking the right company, uh, but graphite's a particularly difficult business also. Um, so 
there's a lot of investment that's got to go into these things. Aluminum, uh, we don't have a lot of shortages or problem finding uh, the inputs into aluminum, uh, but the process of making aluminum is perhaps the most uh, carbon intensive industrial process that uh, we have on earth, if you will. And yet aluminum is the single metal that is uh, most consistently in all renewable technologies. So solar panels, for example, the entire frame is made out of aluminum. Uh, cars increasingly to sort of lighten their weight have aluminum in them. Wind turbines, they've got aluminum. It's sort of just everywhere. Sure. So you talk about this this need to, to increase production of some of these raw materials at a time where it's more and more difficult to find a really highly productive mines. As an investor, how do you identify the companies that, that are going to find these things? You know, because, uh, yeah, where do you go to look to, to, to find these businesses to invest in this opportunity? Well, I mean, the, the, the easiest thing to do is, is to sort of pick your commodity first and, and then just uh, start start listing out the companies that, that exist on the market. And everyone, especially with mining firms, everyone's going to be comfortable playing in a sort of different uh, point in the company's life cycle. So uh, you've got junior miners up in Canada that, uh, you know, they're nothing but geology. If you can assess geology and geological risk, that is a great place in the development curve of mine to play. Uh, I would argue that probably most people aren't capable of assessing geological risk. Um, and we, we, as you know, largely mining investors, we spend you know, as much as 40% of our portfolios in mining at any given time. We don't even invest in sort of geological plays very often. Um, only when uh, there's a management team that we really know well and we really can trust. Do we do that? That's a very difficult place to play. And if you want to create a portfolio of those types of companies, uh, the answer would be you need to spend a lot of time doing research and put together a portfolio of probably 20 or 25 of them. It's much more of a sort of venture cap game uh, than it is um, a you know concentrated portfolio. So um, you're going to have to be satisfied with the fact that a bunch of them are never going to become anything and you're going you're to have zeros on those investments. Some of them are going to break even. You're, you're going to get your money back. And then a couple of them are going to make all your returns. So if you're not comfortable with that, then you, know, you can sort of move over. And, and these companies all have a bit of a, a life cycle in the market um, and they sort of tend to pop. Uh, once a geological discovery has been made. And then once everyone sort of settles into the fact that this is going to be a three, five, 10 year process to build a mine, they tend to sell off again. And down there in that trough where there's been significant de-risking and maybe the company's achieved uh, financing already, or they've already got a plan for the mine and construction is underway. You know, significant de-risking has occurred it becomes more of an engineering and an execution problem. And so if you've got the skill set to analyze that type of issue, um, that's a great place to be. And, and that, that tends to be where we play. And you can take a much more concentrated portfolio approach there. Uh, and then if you've, got, if you've got none of those skills, um, you know, you're best off probably looking at you know, just focusing exclusively on sort of maybe a couple of management teams that you're comfortable with and, and you think are trustworthy or heading over to some of the bigger guys at a point in time when they sell off. Um, 
the big guys like like a BHP or a Rio Tinto, you know, they cover all the metals. Glencore heavily invested in all kinds of different transition metals. Um, if you can get them at the right price and you're comfortable just holding them for the long term, uh, they might sort of work out well for you. So it, the mining investment space is difficult, um, but if you are cognizant of what your skill set is and you're willing to do the work, I don't think any industry uh, more frequently throws up opportunities that could potentially make a lot of money uh, than the mining industry. Um, but, but the key is potentially make a lot of money. So. Yeah, it's, uh, potentially is doing a lot of work uh, uh, there in that, that sentence there. Uh, so you, you talked about maybe you want to split it off into, into different commodity commodities of interest. Uh, one, one that I know a lot of people are interested in right now just because of uh, the electric vehicle uh, space is lithium. You have some investments in that space. When you, when you look at that area, are there any, any companies that fall into that second category you mentioned uh, that, that you find of interest that folks should have on their, on their radar? Um, I think the, uh, our favorite, um, at least, um, is Lithium America, uh, or LAC. It trades, uh, on the NYSE. Um, so, uh, all your American listeners, uh, sort of can buy into it easily. Uh, they have a deposit in Argentina, a brine deposit that is going to come online shortly. It's a very large deposit. They've already pre-sold, uh, or they have an agreement, if you will, an offtake agreement uh, with Gangfang, which is a Chinese uh, lithium and battery producer. Um, so they've, they've pre-sold all of the mines uh, production. Uh, and then they have a developing deposit uh, in the United States, uh, actually right near uh, sort of where Elon Musk has bought a, a bunch of property that he thinks he's gonna build a lithium mine at um, uh, that, they will develop over the next couple of years. And, and once both these deposits are up and running, they will be one of the largest um, producers of lithium in the world. Uh, and it's a very solid management team. One of the things that's tricky about lithium is, and uh, I'm not the one who came up with this, uh, uh, someone else did, so I'm, I'm just quoting him. Um, uh, lithium is a more of a chemical business with a mine attached than it is a mining business. So the actual processing of lithium uh, is quite complex and quite important. And so you need a management team with significant experience. And the LAC management team all comes from uh, Livent, FMC, and Albemarle, which are sort of the three big uh, lithium producers who have been in the business of producing lithium for many years and sort of know how to uh, take this, this uh, rock and turn it into a useful chemical, basically. Yeah, you mentioned earlier this idea that we actually have a decent amount of lithium. Is that that processing and those grades of, of the metal, is that, that really the distinguishing factor here? Yes, absolutely. So um, no, no shortage of lithium out there. Uh, the question is whether you can take it and turn it into the grade uh, and type of lithium that a particular battery producer wants. And, and all the battery producers seem to have slightly different, you know, the broad chemistries are, are, are roughly the same. Um, but every producer requires a, a slightly different tweak, it seems like, to their, uh, to their lithium. Um, and so being able to, to produce just what that battery producer is looking for is quite important. So, so, that, so lithium, Lithium America LAC is one to, one to keep, keep your eye on. As you look at some of these other metals, nickel, copper, aluminum, what are some companies in those categories that, that maybe jump out to you? 
uh, well in, in the copper space, um, you know, for the, for the very intrepid, uh, we still think Turquoise Hill uh, is a fantastic opportunity. Um, TRQ is the ticker symbol. Turquoise Hill has been a bit of, has been a bit of a challenged asset um, and uh, they are not at production. Well, they've got an open pit mine in Mongolia. Uh, the open pit mine also has an underground mine that's being developed. Um, the underground mine will come online in the next couple of years. Um, it'll be uh, quite a quite an interesting and unique uh, mine because of the scale at which they're operating what is called a block cave mine. It's going to be one of the largest block cave mines in the world. Um, and block cave mining just happens to be a very challenging sort of approach to mining. Um, but uh, that it is one of the uh, largest copper deposits with just great grades and great gold sort of gold byproducts um, is certainly true. It sits there on the Mongolia border with China. So their primary customer is right there. Um, buying it right now, uh, you know, I think you're, you're getting it pretty cheap. Um, there are absolutely risks involved um, and uh, there are some political risks involved with the Mongolian government. Uh, you are partnering very much so with Rio Tinto who owns 51% and uh, sort of every six months is rumored to be coming up with some sort of scheme to take over the entire company uh, at a discount to its current market cap. Um, might that come to pass? It sure, it, it theoretically could. Uh, our bet is that uh, if they do, you at least get paid a little bit of a premium from here. So um, we think Turquoise Hill is interesting. Uh, another great one is Ivanhoe, which uh, a guy by the name of Robert Friedland discovered the OT mine, which is owned by Rio Tinto. He's also the sort of discoverer uh, of the Kamoa Kakula mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, which is owned by Ivanhoe. It is just this most spectacular copper deposit uh, I've ever seen. Um, the grades are many multiples, uh, the grades of basically all other copper deposits around the world. Uh, they will be that they will be the lowest cost producer on the cost curve, um, save for a couple of these uh, copper mines that have just absurd gold byproducts uh, is absolutely true. Um, that no one can produce uh, the scale and the scale of copper that they're going to produce at the, at the cost that they're going to produce it at uh, is almost certain. Yeah, so, so given these dynamics that we talked about earlier of, I think everybody, believes and you see governments make, taking steps that will require energy transition, move to renewables, move to electric vehicles, et cetera, and all these uh, inputs are going to be necessary for, for that to take place. Why are these companies still a compelling valuation in your view? Like, why hasn't the market realized this? It seems, yeah. it seems obvious when, when you lay it out there. No, I mean, um, you know, look, you look at something again, like Turquoise Hill, Turquoise Hill has had a challenge past. And I think that challenge past, which is still, you know, it still weighs on the company. Um, they still, you know, the mine is still, the underground mine is still not up and running. Um, that they need to go out and raise some additional capital and will dilute shareholders uh, currently who own it um, is certain also. Okay, so, so there are absolute drawbacks um, that everyone sort of in the mining space or a lot of people in the mining space got burned uh, on copper miners and gold miners uh, and iron ore companies you know, within the last uh, five to 10 years is also certainly true. Um, that 
in the United States in particular, uh, ETFs um, and index investing is driving people towards, you know, allocations towards the S&P 500, um, you know, an index that has no, you know, no mining companies in it or, or is driving people to, you know, the QQQs and NASDAQs, um, you know, that's certainly got a role to play. Um, the sort of love affair that we have, and appropriately so at, at one point uh, with um, asset light uh, software companies, you know, at one time that was a cheap and fantastic opportunity. Now at this point, you know, whether those companies are still the fantastic growth opportunity that they once were or are getting a little expensive, I think is an open question. Um, but all, all of that, all those flows, if you will, into those businesses have taken flows away from and attention away from uh, a lot of these real asset businesses. And so I think, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the sort of major investment banks in London you know, they just fired their entire mining team. Um, they just let it go. You know, nobody was interested. Uh, another one, and this is a little more understandable, perhaps just let go their entire oil and natural gas team. Um, you know, that there is opportunity and value in some of these businesses due to distraction or lack of interest uh, is certainly the case. That it may take some time for that to reverse itself is also the case. But because of real world constraints in both sort of science and physics and the fact that, you know, it's great to decarbonize, but software can't do it, um, you know, it takes a little while for that to filter through and for people to recognize it and to change their sort of way of thinking. Right, certainly. Until until this uh, these EV markets, et cetera, et cetera, mature to where the, where the demand catches up, uh, it's not going to trickle down to these suppliers. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, Lithium uh, and cobalt have both had, you know, sort of a, a, a rocky history as of late with a, a bubble in both that, that definitely burst. And part of that was driven by, you know, sort of excitement about EVs and then them not sort of uh, panning out the way people thought they would. Uh, of course, that, you know, we're not replacing, you know, 18 million cars a year with EVs at this early stage, you know, isn't surprising. Transitions in the real world are much slower than transitions in the world of software. And so I, I actually think there's something interesting going on where, you know, we've come, we've become quite accustomed during the sort of information revolution, if you will, over the last 20 years to things occurring at these really fast paces. Of course, when you have real science and engineering challenges, um, you know, th those things don't change quite as quickly. Uh, you know, how many miles and, and how much time do you need to run a car before you're comfortable selling it to the public? Or how much time uh, does it test a plant for some new, you know, chemical process or energy production methodology need before you're comfortable spending a billion dollars building a full scale? Um, building a mine, you know, copper mine takes 10 or 15 years to build. Um, so these transitions are occurring at a pace that is slower uh, and will continue to be slower than people think, in part because we've gotten so accustomed to transitions occurring so quickly. Right. I mean, it, you know, it takes a long time to begin with. Plus, you need the capital to do so. Do you think it? Do you think that, that this shift of, of capital flows is pushing back the pace of transition further than it would have been otherwise? To the degree that, you know, management teams 
are looking at, and, and we all know that they look quarter to quarter and, and we'd like everyone to look, you know, sort of long-term, but they don't always do that. And, and they're incentivized. Uh, sometimes they're incentivized properly, sometimes they aren't. To the degree that management teams are just looking at their company stock quarter to quarter, um, they're just not going to go out and make, you know, big, bold uh, strategic transition decisions or make big, bold capital allocation decisions. Um, and so to the degree that capital continues to flow away from them rather than into them, um, yes, it'll slow down the transition. Um, that you can say mine copper or mine nickel or produce steel in a econo uh, economically and environmentally sustainable way. And both they both have to be sustainable, the economics and the environment. They both need to be sustainable. That you can do it is absolutely true. That these companies have the footprints already to do it is less true. So they need to make large capital allocation decisions. And with large capital allocation decisions, you need you know, a shareholder base who's willing to stick with you, who's willing to look long-term and sort of empower management to make these bold decisions that in the end, you know, some of them are not going to work, but some of them are going to be really value creative. Okay? It, it isn't just going to be buying back shares. You know, you're going to create real value that grows the business. Yeah, so, so we talk about we talked earlier about how access to capital is impacting some of these companies. This year, we've seen this huge rise in SPAC investing as a new way uh, to, to get capital to companies. Particularly, it's been late stage software companies as well as as some pre revenue electric vehicle companies. Do you see that as being a, an avenue that could solve this funding problem uh, for mining companies? I. So there are a couple of rare earth metal SPACs, or at least one that I can think of, um, that uh, in that particular case, it's an appropriate sort of medium to come to market. Seems seems a reason, you know, I, I can't critique it, if you will, right? Um, that SPACs represent a potentially interesting path forward for clean energy technologies more broadly, I think is the case. That SPACs have a few issues of their own, uh, that you know we're currently seeing some people resolve by um, sort of not allocating shares to owners as cheaply and, and and or sponsors of the SPAC as cheaply as has historically happened is the case. Um, you know I think is in, is an important part of whether SPACs become a path forward uh, for a lot of these clean energy technologies. But you know the the historical way that uh, new technologies have been financed. The VC route is a bit of a difficult route for capital-intensive uh, projects. And a lot of these real asset industries have capital-intensive projects, right? And so a VC, they want to be able to sort of see a path to ramping up, to scaling, and to getting out sort of within 10 years. And, and that timeline has obviously gotten extended with things like Uber and, and you know, some of these larger uh, longer uh, or larger companies that have stayed private for longer, um, but that they want to see a path to getting out and scaling uh, is certainly true. And that's much harder with a real asset industry that you can sort of have a technology and then come to market via a SPAC uh, and have a real you know, significant source of capital, a couple hundred million dollars right off the bat to build pilot projects that you can you know, show potential customers uh, is potentially quite value added. And it's an interesting, it's a potentially interesting path. 
a lot of clean energy technologies. Yeah, certainly, I guess it escapes that that VC problem of mm -hmm. you need to be able to see incredible growth and you know this idea. Peter Thiel wants to own the entire market. I don't think you're ever going to own the entire market for a commodity. Uh, so, so a little bit different uh, value proposition there. Yeah, absolutely, very much so. You mentioned rare earths. Uh, we, we see this this industry pop up uh, here and there. Uh, I believe it was maybe a decade ago was the last time it, it had super high interest. Uh, just this month, President Trump planned an executive order declaring a national emergency in the mining industry aimed at boosting domestic production of rare earth minerals, reducing dependence on China. What do you make of rare earths? Do you think that this is something that, that folks should be paying attention to, or you think it's overhyped? Um, I, I think it's overhyped. Uh, you know, one of the things that's quite tricky with commodity businesses and sort of understanding the supply and demand dynamics um, is that uh, the size of the industry versus the scale of the producers and what they're capable of producing can create these weird dynamics. Um, so the rare earth metal market is extremely small. Okay, so um, the SPAC that is coming online, uh, MP Materials, uh, owns Mountain Pass out in California, uh, which produces uh, neobidinium and praseodinium, uh, and hopefully I pronounced those correctly. Um, the total market for those metals is 34,000 uh, sort of kilogram, uh, kilograms a year, kilotons, kiloton, uh, kilotons or kilograms a year, uh, must be kilotons. Um, they're going to produce somewhere between the single mine when it's fully up and running, they're going to produce something between 15 and 20% of the global market. So they're just going to drop basically 20% more supply or, you know, 15%, somewhere between those two into the market. Um, and because it's so small, the ability to absorb that new supply as it comes online uh, is quite constrained. Now, the hope with rare earths, of course, is that electric cars and various electrification technologies uh, grow exponentially and absorb it. Um, but as we've already seen, say with lithium and cobalt, um, getting that timing sort of just right is quite difficult. And frankly, it's not that you can get the timing right. You know, a company might get lucky and happen to bring on its mine at just the right time, but that management can foresee with enough clarity that they can sequence bringing a mine online at just the right time, it's just nonsense. Um, that there is a theoretical long-term opportunity in rare earths, I'm willing to absolutely entertain that proposition. Uh, that I have yet to see a rare earth mining company that was uh, a continuously profitable and value-creative business uh, I just, I mean, I just haven't seen one. Um, now, admittedly, there aren't that many, uh, but, you know, Linus Corp, which is in Australia and is sort of like the largest publicly traded rare earth miner, if you get your timing just right on the equity side, you'll make some money um, because from time to time, they make money. But the point is that the market is so small, the supply and dynam uh, demand dynamics so tricky, that they only make money some of the time. Um, it's just with highly niche metals that are uh, sold, you know, not on open markets, but on contract, 
it's just very tricky uh, to sort of get it right um, at both the operator level and at the equity investor level. Um, so MP, uh, MP Materials, the SPAC that's coming online, um, I think it's interesting. Uh, I've read the, you know, the S4, the, the registration documents. Um, you know, it, it's, it's certainly intriguing. I'm going to keep an eye on it, uh, but I'm certainly not going to sort of buy it here uh, in absence of a lot more information um, than we currently have coming to us. I'd also just sort of add that uh, in regards to that particular SPAC, there's some just some sort of interesting dynamics going on. There, there is a Chinese owner. Uh, and part of the reason that Donald Trump declared an emergency, of course, in rare earths is because China owns so much of the rare earth metal market. So what role that, that Chinese uh, owner plays in this company going forward? And I think when the, when the company's public, it's gonna own about 10%, you know, is an open question, or, you know, 10 to six, six to 10%. Um, you know, so I think there's there's some interesting dynamics at play, and it's going to be an interesting process and story to watch. Uh, that it is investable now, though, I think is probably an open question. Right. So, so it's a bigger deal for the markets that'll be supplying than it is for maybe the people who, who might potentially invest in the equity of, of the business. I think so. Yes. And, and that's, that's is this one of those high prices solve high prices things? Like maybe you see in oil, where where once that opportunity in rare earths presents itself, you, suddenly you have folks exploring exploring for for the metal, and then that that floods supply and rinse repeat. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's a that's a good way of putting it. I, I mean, I think that's that's a pretty common sort of path for a lot of markets, that sort of capital cycle analysis, if you will, that, uh, you know, people will flood markets where there's an opportunity to make money. And then because they flood the market, the, the money to be made will, you know, sort of decline, margins will decline. Um, you see that at play in almost all commodities, but it just goes into hyper overdrive, if you will, when the market is so very small. So th that, raises a question for me now. We've talked about that this point in time where, where there's clearly growth in, in the end markets for, for some of these commodities, but they're, they're starved for capital. Do you see this as, you know, we're, we're at, at the beginning of what could be a new cycle? And if so, you know, how long do these cycles typically run? Uh, that we are at the early stage of a potentially positive cycle for a lot of these metals, I think is true. Is it you know, 10 years ago, you heard people talking about, say, commodity super cycle and things of that nature. This is a commodity super cycle. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to make that claim. Um, uh, that we're entering a good environment, which is all you really need, uh, for metals like copper, lithium, or nickel uh, over the next 10 to 20 years. I think that's absolutely true. Um, that they can last 10, 20, or 30 years, I think is absolutely true in this case also. If you just look at sort of uh, how long it's going to take to replace a lot of existing assets, um, especially on the EV side, it, it's going to take a long time. Um, it's not going to be, you know, you're not going to get a pop, make a bunch of money by investing in Tesla right now, and then go away and never make money again. You know, there are going to be opportunities that come up over and over and over again over the next 10 to 20 years in some of these sort of enablers uh, of the transition. We, we talked earlier about this idea that ESG funds are leading to 
capital being starved from these industries that are really going to be most important to reducing emissions going into the future and, and transitioning our economy uh, to a cleaner energy infrastructure. What advice do you have for retail investors who want to want to make those types of, of impactful investments uh, in the economy, given uh, those limitations of, of ESG funds? Yeah, so uh, I would again, you know, emphasize uh, sort of looking at um, the world of carbon emissions in a bit of a constraint-based framework. Look for those <coughs> those pinch points. Look for the places where there is a lot of carbon emissions, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, um, and no one is is trying to address the problem. Oh, and or uh, the solutions to the problem. Are not attracting any attention, right? So, you know, everybody's looking at the auto industry right now. That there will be money made in it is absolutely certain, but but that you, the individual sitting there doing research on your own, are going to find the next great opportunity is probably unlikely with all the eyes that are on it. So, you know, look to some of those out of the way industries uh, that feed into solving the problems uh, in some of the industries that aren't attracting the attention. So, the steel industry, uh, the cement industry, the glass industry, you know, the chemical industry is a huge carbon emitter and we use chemicals everywhere. Chemicals aren't going anywhere, okay? Everyone needs paints and laminates and glues and sealants, okay? These things, you know, I look at my desk and every product has some sort of chemical in it somewhere in some way. Um, you know, how are those industries going to decarbonize? Where are the opportunities in those industries? Where are the constraints uh, that are preventing a transition? Uh, and who is looking at addressing those constraints. Um, that, that would be my advice. Uh, it, it takes shoe leather, uh, but good investing always does. Absolutely. These are the folks who, uh, there's not a lot of people competing in, in those industries. So it's where there, there may be some opportunities. Will, uh, thanks again for, for joining us on the podcast. As this continues to play out, we'd love to have you back on again to talk about some other opportunities uh, to invest in. Absolutely. I'd love to do so. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Steve Broido for mixing the show. For Will Thompson, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.